Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture. And you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Michael Benedict to talk about his book, Architecture Beyond Experience. Michael teaches design studio and architectural theory at the University of Texas at Austin, where he holds the Halbox Chair in Urbanism. He not only writes and engages in academic research, but he also practices architecture. Michael, thank you very much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Well, uh, I've been a, a lover of architecture for as long as I can remember, but um, a practitioner and then mostly a teacher and writer about architecture. Since uh, 1975, I went to Yale Graduate School, um, came down to Texas at that time, and have uh, loved being here uh, ever since. Great. And so we can just jump right into it. And so the book is called Architecture Beyond Experience, and it's, it's broken into three parts, the third part being Architecture Beyond Experience. However, there's the first two that kind of build on quite a bit of a framework to kind of get us there with a lot of explanations. And so I was wondering if we could start right at the first part, the idea of locating the sacred. And I, I think it's worth mentioning for the listeners that when you say sacred, you're not necessarily referring to it as a theological standpoint. Well, it is a theological standpoint, depending on how, how broadly you understand the term uh, theology. Um, but you're right, it does, it does start um, for, at, a, at a, a statement about, um, should we call it ultimate values or the spiritual experience uh, in architecture. Um, I'm a member uh, of a group called Architecture, Culture, Spirituality Forum, um, and I attended many of the meetings, and I found a lot of uh, uh, brotherhood, if you will, with a group of architects who thought that uh, sort of commercial and functional uh, reasons for architecture were not 
motivational uh, and not sort of deep enough to really take architecture to, should we say, the next level. Um, so I thought that these, these first questions, like why do architecture, what is the ultimate justification for doing it? Um, is it purely functional? Clearly not. There are psychological and ritual reasons uh, to make buildings. And that these are the ones really that ought to be carrying architecture forward um, as an art. I had uh, some differences, shall we say, with most of uh, the people of that organization in that I, uh, my book previous to this was actually a book of theology called uh, God is the Good We Do. Um, and it's uh, a description of a God that was not a creator or all-powerful or unified, but rather more like a process theological God that is a God who comes into being with our actions that uh, we are responsible for as much as responsible to. Um, so <clears throat> for a lot of people, that sounds uh, rather atheistic uh, for me, for me, not at all. Um, and I had long been a fan of uh, a philosopher named Martin Buber, uh, who comes close to saying the same sort of thing as did uh, philosophers like uh, Alfred North Whitehead, and Samuel Alexander, and some others. Uh, also, uh, Neiman, who was the mentor of Martin Luther King, and so forth. So it turns out it wasn't such an original idea, but I, I put together a whole new way to think about it. And I, it struck me that this is the kind of God an architect could believe in, because um, architects are nothing if not uh, morally creative agents. And I saw in the ability and the genius of architects to make, quote unquote, something out of nothing, um, a little bit like that of an artist or a musician, to take raw materials and create something in a very general way divine, meaning uh, ennobling, um, creative of community, um, psychologically satisfying, uh, and something that would last beyond uh, a single lifetime, as well as be part of every moment of consciousness. Uh, so I thought the right way to start a discussion of architecture is by putting, so to speak, your theological cards on the table. So the first few chapters attempt to do that. And the first few chapters claim, and you can believe it or not, you'd have to read them, I guess, um, that there is a theology operating inside of architecture. It's just not one we talk about. Um, That's a very good point. And so you, in, in, in the beginning chapters, you mentioned, again, when I say it's not theological, I think when you first hear sacred, you think of kind of the design of a church. And so you bring up a good point that almost any designer while they don't go out to do that, almost every architect tries to put in a higher ceiling that's necessary, some beautiful water fixtures. They try to get people gathering, and you make the point that that is all sacred design, no matter what building you're doing yeah. it for. Yeah, also, you know, symmetry, uh, mysterious light from above, uh, magical effects like levitation, um, you know, showing no signs of uh, dirt, 
um, the super cleanliness. Uh, there, once you get into it, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, these are all uh, tropes of uh, sacrality. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. you had mentioned, you know, part of that group you were kind of discusses the, some of the shortcomings of defining architecture, et cetera. You know, you bring up another good point that I know in my personal practice, I've never once had a client want to have a sacred design. And you actually, you spell out that the clients are usually asking for efficiency, style, and profit. I would say it's usually efficiency and profit. <laughs> Yet, I okay. think it's probably not a controversial idea that any client would actually want all of these we'll call them sacred design aspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the church is, is a special kind of house in a way. Um, but anyway, I, I try not to rest the entire book, you know, on top of a theological claim. But I do think that was the place to start. And as you know, um, I move on to the idea of uh, sort of the uh, of experience as being the place that things came to rest for the architectural argument. In other words, the religious experience or the spiritual experience, uh, the experience of space, the experience of time, the experience of your own body, um, the experience of a particular moment. So there's a, a sort of a huge literature grew in the phenomenology of architecture that said, yeah, the real reason to do architecture is to uh, enhance the human experience. So I think the, 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 the religious impulse uh, in many ways ends up being uh, transmuted, if you will, into a sort of an obsessive uh, interest in experience. And, and that comes out to be something like spatial experience or experience of light or the experience of your own body, the experience of space, um, and the word experience, I think, in the last 20 years or so, has come to stand in for architects' natural interest in the sacred or the spiritual. <clears throat> um, and I think for most people, talk of architectural experience, or to speak of architectural experientially, um, satisfies um, the, the sort of the instinct that there has to be a psychological or spiritual dimension to the best architecture. And obviously experientialism, uh, experientialism is a big part of the book. Experientialism is the way I say it, yeah. 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 Obviously it's a big part of the book. It's not only in the title, but it's kind of brought up throughout. And so maybe we'll cut back to that. So I'm not asking you to, to, to summarize the book in one sentence. You, uh, you bring up the idea of kind of, psychological and kind of a few different not I, I, at first there's a quite a few mention of non-architectural kind of theorists in here you had mentioned martin buber you know you talk about buddhism and then a concept i think we would like to hear more about the idea of a solipsism hopefully i said that right you know again uh, concepts that I, i've never read in an architectural book but i think a good case is made on their relevance here and, and again i just threw three of them i guess maybe we could start with martin buber because you had mentioned him by name the idea that, you know, every phenomenon is based on bonds between two subjects, we'll call them. I know that's a little vague, but, you know, and you bring up a concept that I, I think the listeners would benefit to hear more about, the idea of I, you versus I, it. Okay. Right. So, um, 
Martin Buber was probably the only philosopher I had read, and I read him first, by the way, when I was a teenager and didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> I went back to it in my 20s, and I understood a little more, and then back in my 40s. So he's definitely a philosopher I, I had to revisit many times. And now in my uh, advanced old age, um, um, I think I finally got it. Um, uh, yeah, so Buber talks about two attitudes towards the world. Um, and he uses a double word to describe these two attitudes. One is I-it, and the other is I-you. Uh, or sometimes in the literature it will be referred to as I-thou. But from the German it's more like I-you. Um, and that describes the relationship between your, yourself and any other thing, object, creature, entity in the world. In the I-it relation, um, you think of the other person or animal or whatever as being useful to you or not, as being dangerous to you or not, edible or not, um, even beautiful or not. Um, it's, but it's a very objectifying experience. You, um, not, I shouldn't even call it an experience. It's a, it's a, a, a relationship between you and the object. But in, in IU, he claims there's, it's a different kind of relationship. In IU, you actually address the object as like when you say hello to it, or you feel like it addresses you. Um, and when you address yourself to an object and you try to look into it, uh, try to see what kind of subjectivity it has, uh, judge whether it's responding to you, uh, you open yourself to it, uh, it opens itself to you maybe, but you certainly open yourself to it and become a little vulnerable. It sounds a lot like love, but it's actually not. It could easily be hate. Um, but it is, the IU relationship is um, uh, like, uh, it's, it's pre-love, shall we say, or it's um, before, before it turns into love or hate. It's simply being open to the other in a way that I-it is not. So that was a distinction which is, takes a little bit of practice to sort of get the hang of. But somewhere in that book, a book called I and You by Martin Buber, he takes the word experience and he says, all experience is I-it. And that struck me quite deeply. I thought, all experience is I-it. According to Buber, I-it generates experiences. And these experiences become stories, movies, um, accounts we give each other, and ways that we uh, judge things and weigh things against each other for their advantage or disadvantage. The word he uses for IU, though, is encounter. In IU, you encounter the other. And that encounter has a totally different feeling and a totally different uh, moral consequence. And that started me thinking about what does it mean to encounter a building? What does it mean to encounter a piece of furniture? What does it mean to encounter a tree 
or a landscape or an animal in the landscape? Like how, what would it mean to have an IU relation to a building? And uh, would, could ordinary people have that? Uh, could designers have that? Do designers have that? Do artists have that? And my thought was absolutely, absolutely, especially an artist. An artist's relationship to what she's doing is not I it, it's uh, I you. Um, and I wanted to explore that difference. Thank you. Great explanation. You know, as a firm owner myself, I, I think it's an interesting aside that you mentioned almost briefly that, you know, a lot of self-employed and young architects, if they're not careful, they'll view everything as a I-it relationship. Kind of, you know, everything is a possible advantage to further their own business. Right. Or the, or the client's business. I'm not saying they're going to be egotistic, but everything has to be weighed for the advantage and disadvantage. I mean, when you hear architects saying, I'm going to do the, put the building here like this, that, or the other, and I'm going to capture this view, and then I'm going to capture that view, that <laughs> always starts making me uh, a chuckle. Because, like, really? Um, uh, what, is a view like a, like a tiger? <laughs> you know, how clever do you have to be to capture a view? Not very. You just have to put a window in that direction. You know, it's like... Um, I don't know. Actually, I do enjoy the interactional idea of capturing, uh, you know, a view that's like a tiger. Um, but it's all very instrumental, put it that way. And it's all very. It's, there's definitely a payoff or payoff. Absolutely. And so, of course, there's so much more in the first part. I, I do want to kind of touch on all three. And so, moving on to the second part, the idea of fabric of glances. And I don't want to keep quizzing you on your big concepts. So maybe we'll work. We'll break it down a little bit and we'll get to it. Okay, sure. I know that part starts with something very interesting. I re you, you have a chapter entitled The Critique of Environmental Study, Behavior Study. I've had uh, probably three different authors on the show that discuss their findings and research they've done for environmental behavior study. And so I personally find it very interesting that you make the claim, and again, if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding, please correct me, but you're making the claim that despite all this advance in research and data, architects are kind of, for the most part, ignoring a lot of this. Yeah. Well, do you think I'm wrong? I don't disagree. Yeah. I, uh, but it's, sorry, again, I, I don't want to. Because, you know, I, uh, there is a part of me that's an environmental behavior study guy. Um, my research with ISOVIS, in fact, started out in that, in that genre. It was exact, yeah, like, how do you affect people's judgment of spaciousness? How do people move around buildings? How do you design uh, um, hospital wards so that doctors can see the nurses and the nurses can see the patients? How do people walk around in museums? How do you lay out cities and shopping centers? All this was work with uh, ISOVists, and there are thousands of papers online about it. So all of that happened happens, it's still going on, within the context of environment behavior studies. And that's actually where most of this is. And over the years, I've come to wonder why it is that architects are not at all interested in it. Uh, yeah. And so when I say I, dis I don't disagree, the, the answer I, I was going to give is, f from what I can see, at least again, it's my own personal, medical facilities and schools in particular have truly embraced it. It's almost like dogma. But it seems like, at least in my mind, every other building type does completely ignore it and does not 
you know, I don't know if you have a different opinion on schools and medical facilities, if you think everyone's ignoring it or. No, I think, listen, uh, I've not spent a lot of time in firms that design, you know, prisons, hospitals, and schools, which, by the way, somehow seem to go together in the same, in the same firms. Um, and I, I'm not sure that they use all the studies that have been done. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mode of practice that likes to appeal to evidence and likes to appeal to science. And I think uh, EBS, or Environment Behavior Studies, are definitely locked into the, the I-IT scientific worldview. And I suspect that the reason architects are not interested is because temperamentally, architects are not scientists at all. Um, I think we might be engineers up to a point, but I do think we're all uh, uh, closer to artists than anything else, even though we... We have to do spreadsheets and reports and uh, make sure the concrete's good. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we're like sculptors, um, but in our heart of hearts, we trust our intuitions. We trust our eye. Um, we look for feelings. Uh, we try to achieve magical effects whenever we can. Um, and I think that that's not available in the literature of environment behavioral studies. Like that whole perspective on the world is missing. And I don't think, arch- and I don't think architects are gonna listen to it uh, unless they have to, unless it's a professional, professional requirement or legal requirement, yeah. So in your opinion, if that element was added to some of the papers, studies, case studies, could it garner yeah. some more interest or would yeah, we still yeah. go with our gut instinct? Well, Brian, I, I think you've you know put your finger on the on the bridge I'm trying to build, which is I you know I, I actually invented many of those tools that are being used as you as you said, uh, and and I'm I'm super proud, um, but actually there's there's more to Isovis and the fabric of glances and embranes and all that stuff that's in the second part of the book. There's much more that's, quote, very loosely speaking, spiritual inside of those concepts. And my thought is when architects can see that or can rather can feel that, um, that these tools will become part of, the, of, the, part of what the artist side of the architect can see. And I think you can see in the book there's some very visually beautiful illustrations of what's revealed when you apply these tools. Absolutely. And to the listeners, hopefully they will take a look at those graphics after this interview. And so you've actually mentioned this term isovist a few times, and I know it, you know, and I know there's, there's, it's, it's throughout the book, but you do kind of focus a little bit in this part, the idea of, I'll I'll take it right off your chapter title, kind of optic arrays, the idea of what people are looking at, and that sounds so simple at first, but I think you've proven that it's it's its own field of study, to be honest. Uh, gosh, man, you know, with everything, the more you look, the more you see. It's like, you know, art is obsession, and this is a sort of an obsession. Um, the obviously, we walk around in the world, we we see we see it in three D, and as we move around, what we see changes. So isovist is a technique 
not entirely invented by me, but really sort of unpacked by me uh, back in the early 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, actually, um, where the idea is that you uh, take a point in a plan of a building or a, it could be a garden, doesn't matter, uh, and you just draw in plan all the space that can be seen from a given point. Now, obviously, if you look into the sky, you can see the stars, so it's infinitely large. But you just take a couple hundred feet as your natural world, and you just draw the shape of the volume of the space that's visible. And the minute you have that shape, which is called an isovith, which is the, the sum of all the points visible from a given point, suddenly you realize that that shape has a size and a shape, and that it changes from point to point. And that math can be done that quantifies, uh, that quantifies that shape and quantifies the nature of it. So there are different boundary conditions. There are occlusive planes. Uh, there are surfaces. Um, and there turn out to be up to a dozen different statistics that can apply to what that shape's doing. You can then put that, those measures, all over a plan and you get a field picture of space in which the quality of the space is definable by a huge bunch of numbers uh, or colors. Uh, and so you can actually see the quality of space changing from, from part, one part of the building to another part of the building. And it turns out that those qualities uh, guide our behavior and predict our feelings uh, quite well. And so the middle part of the book is all that stuff laid out as best I can. Absolutely. So and it, you had mentioned that sometimes the environment behavior study is missing a graphic portion. You know, this, uh, I, I know the diagrams you present, I think, in my mind at least, are somewhat of that graphic. Because I, I, I will say the definition of Isovis didn't land with me until I saw, uh -huh. until I saw the graphics. So. Yes, exactly. Right. And so one well, question I yeah. have. And my belief, is, of course, is that I, that's how architects think. I mean. Yeah. I'm an architect. I love architects and my brothers and sisters. And uh, we think with, with drawings. We think mm -hmm. with diagrams. Um, and that's what I try to do. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely. And so something else you present graphically and that I, I'd like to hear just a little bit more elaboration. So there's this idea of the isovis, which I think you just explained very well. And then in a few chapters later, you bring up this idea of a presence field. And I guess for me, my personal question is, is it does seem like there's a bit of a difference between the two. But at first glance, in my mind, they seem very similar. You know, what 
what is kind of the difference between presence field and an isogenous? Well, the term you used earlier called the fabric of glances is, is an essential sort of link. So uh, an isovist at a given point in an environment uh, is all the points that are visible from that point, okay? Uh, but you won't make any distinctions if something's far away or close or whether it's to your left or to your right. If it's in your field of view, you're in. You're in the isovist as a potential. But people don't look at everything with equal interest at all. There are special points that we look at. And one of the things that we look at most closely is other people, okay? So you could imagine if you, uh, if you had the technology, you could watch what people are looking at. You could have like little beams coming out of their eyes. And in the book, I actually do it. There's a, there's a video embedded in the book where you see someone doing that. Um, so you imagine now you imagine people walking around in a building with uh, eye beams coming out of their eyes that flicker and look at things and mostly look at other people. So when there's two or three people in a room, they mostly look at each other. Sometimes they avoid looking at each other depending on their relationship. But if you imagine, if you imagine those eye beams uh, leaving a trace, let's say they're bright for a second and then they slowly fade, right? And you just take everyone's looking and where they're looking and build it up over time, a kind of a cloud would appear, a sort of a bony, a sort of like a bony spider web maybe. Unclear what that would look like exactly. But that's, that's a kind of so, something that exists inside of isovists, is another whole structure. And I give it the poetic name, the fabric of glances. The fabric of glances is like the history of where everyone was looking when they move around in a space. And the dream was through computation, maybe someday through photography, one would be able to actually see that. You would track people moving around and so forth. Um, but unfortunately, that technology doesn't exist right now. We can do eye tracking in real time, but the equipment is cumbersome and we can't. And it's, yeah, and if you put two or three people in a room and say, you know, don't worry about the shit that's on your face, tracking your eyes, uh, it's not going to work. But you can do something else, and this is where the presence field comes in. You can say, look, where people are looking depends somewhat on which way their shoulders are facing, which way their head is facing. Because people's faces are attached to their heads, which are attached to their necks, which are attached to their shoulders, to their hips, and to their feet. And which way someone is looking, to, uh, you can probabilistically look at um, with probability, a little bit more math. And those create presence fields. And a presence field is the probability of what you're looking, what direction you're looking. And so if you take, let's say, and in the book there's a picture of a, a cocktail party, a real cocktail party uh, photograph, and everyone's, I put everyone in plan, and I just create the field of where they're probably looking, and you can see... Uh, you can see the fabric of glances sort of congealing 
in the way people are standing around uh, and the attitudes they're taking towards each other. So for me, the presence field um, is the beginning to look at the realm of the in-between. It's beginning to look at space not as empty but as full of communication uh, and trying to sort of understand social grouping at this abstract kind of aesthetic level. Thank you very much for explaining that. I think that kind of helps mm-hmm. clear up the two. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that the eye tracking is cumbersome. I, there was another guest on that kind of also hinted that it's not inconclusive. There's some issues. There does seem to be some generalizations. I think you make the argument with the painting that anyone who looks at that painting honestly glances at the eyes, mouth, and heads of the three people first, and then the rest is kind of window dressing. So it's interesting to think about all this being applied to architectural design, obviously. Yeah. And so you had actually mentioned, this is a perfect segue into the third and final part, you had mentioned the idea of the in-between, which you have an entire chapter dedicated to. And so the case you make there that is, uh, of course, architecture is always compared to, you know, technical art. It kind of encompasses a lot of different art. But you have made the case that photography in particular is a friend of art. There's a quote from you, a friend of architecture and vice versa. And so you had mentioned, the, if I understood you correctly, you're mentioning the possibility of using photography to better track people's movements and eye movements. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, yes. But, okay, so this takes us back, Brian, to, to an earlier point that you had me make, actually. Um, I could see some people, certain sort of engineering or research temperaments, looking at uh, M-brains, which I haven't discussed, but anyway, uh, fabric of glances, uh, the order of shoulders, all these uh, eye tracking, uh, and thinking, oh man, here's, this is here's a whole, here's about fifty PhDs right here. Uh, we're going to do this. We're going to watch people. We're going to see where they're looking. We're going to create these patterns. We're going to quantify them. We're going to predict, make predictions. We're going to go into hospitals and schools and prisons <laughs> and, um, and you know, put the data down uh, and give it to designers to design better things with. I think that's fine, but it's not what I wanted to do. It's because, for me, these entities, these concepts, um, have, have a power of their own, a kind of... Uh, psychological or art art value or design power, which I think architects can access at a much higher level than just sort of technical studies of where people are looking. Um, because once you understand these concepts, your actual sense of priorities change. It's like you actually start to think like that. And then the rest of your architectural training sort of kicks in. And so the second part of the, the third part of the book, I should say, is me showing that some of our greatest architects have, have, have done that in, you know, in their own way. So there's Aldo Van Eyck and Louis Kahn and uh, um, uh, Carlos Scarpa and uh, Frank Gehry. And there's hundreds of examples that I could have used, but I, I, and Le Corbusier a lot. Um, you think, what? These guys never had these concepts. They never knew what an isovist was. Um, and I'm saying true, but this is the, the intuitions are old. The intuitions are deep in the soul of architecture, shall I say. 
Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I want to come back to that just real quick. You had briefly mentioned M-brains, and I actually think it's worth elaborating that for the, you know, short for mental membranes. This uh, The reason it sticks out to me is it had the, in my mind, the best anecdote to try to explain it. Oh, well, you, t- you tell it. The idea of an invisible, I'll simplify it, of, of an invisible barrier, which at first sounds a little theoretical, but the yeah, example yeah. you provide is, you know, if you have a plate of food and you put it below a toilet lid without touching the water and bring it out, no one will take <laughs> that food if you offer it to them, even though nothing happened to it. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's that right really across cool. the toilet, or even the, even the sink actually will, will, will work. But you realize that the, the the world the world in general is has invisible surfaces across across doorways, extending from major pieces of furniture. Um, we you know I think the average architect would say, oh you mean thresholds, and yeah and to some extent that's true it is a threshold but it's these things are uh, much more ubiquitous. Um, and when you, uh, as an architecture teacher, Brian, and anyone who teaches design, will, you find yourself coaching students to um, extend the lines that ob- of object into space so that you can, you can, you're always on this side or that side of the table. You're always on this side or that side of this room, right? Uh, even though that's an invisible boundary, the assumption is that people feel them and step through them and frame themselves uh, theatrically with respect to these boundaries. Um, and the question is, why, what makes them strong? What makes them weak? What makes them work? When do they not work? How much can you weaken them before they're gone? And uh, you know from the book, I, I worry that uh, too much open planning and free planning uh, completely destroys uh, these embranes, and the absence of embranes makes it impossible for people to uh, perform their lives uh, using a dramaturgical model of me and you and here and there uh, and so forth. So, yeah, that whole chapter turns into sort of a defense of somewhat classical architecture. Yes, and you had mentioned the idea of rooms, and I think inadvertently kind of glossed over a big a big concept of the book is kind of the idea that the interaction between people rooms and things things being artifacts people being animals or rooms being spaces and so you had mentioned rooms however and rooms kind of get special attention in this chapter you know if you say the word room everybody instantly has an image comes in their mind they have a definition but again, you, you and many others make the argument that the interplay between rooms and people's interaction with rooms is kind of a, a big part of what architecture really is. Yes. Even if you yes, don't think of it an, that way. Yeah, and it's an art we've kind of lost a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, this is the open plan. I mean, I don't know, I happen to be, uh, not to get too personal, I happen to be in the throes of buying a house for my mother-in-law. Uh, and inexpensive, uh, and, you know, a world without architects is opening up before me. Um, And uh, the open plan house um, is like a a site of uh, destruction. Well, it's interesting Um, because if you were to design an office in the last five years, again, the dogma is it needs to be open office plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, listen, there's open and there's open. Uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm advocating that everyone should be in a, in a, in a sheetrock box with a little hole in the wall or a window and a, you know, a door that seals tight. No, 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 no. Not at all. But, you know, nor do I think a big fluorescent pancake uh, with desks floating around and cables on the floor is the answer. So clearly the art of architecture is being clear about what space is yours and isn't, uh, where you present yourself one way and where you present yourself another. Um, and these things have to be clear and they have to be socially, socially structured. So the, one of the notions in the book is there's definitely uh, rules about how people interact in space. Um, some of them are natural. Some of them are just custom. Um, but there are rules about how rooms associate in space. Like you treat a room as though it was a person. And you say, are these rooms associating with each other the way people would if rooms with people. <laughs> I know that sounds no. a little nutty, but <laughs> well, hopefully if you read the book, you, uh, you get it. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned teaching, you know, I think one thing that I probably harp on more than anything is the idea that if you design a, a, the, a floor plan and the exterior of the building separately, it's always obvious and it always suffers. And I won't name any famous architects who are more famous and successful than me, but you, you've mentioned that you'll, you'll have a beautiful sculptural building with a stack of rooms on the inside and the ones on the exterior are kind of unusable because it's all triangulated and curved. Right, because it happens to be pushed against this uh, expressive exterior. Right. And so, again, you know, I, I won't name anyone, but so it, I, I agree with you. You make the case that, you know, if the design of a room is, is architecture as well. The architecture is not a shell of a building that you stuff things in. It's everything. Right. And, of course, I'm borrowing from Louis Kahn. Uh, I think uh, a plan is the society of rooms was probably, I quote him maybe, what, six, ten times in the book. And every time I go, hey, do you realize if that's true or if you, if you want to make it true, I mean, you can ignore it, you know. This is, this is not religion. It's just architecture. But if you go with it, there's lots of consequences. If a plan is a society of rooms, then every room is like an individual has to have a front and a back and its own light, um, its own services, um, its own dignity. Um, it associates with other rooms. I mean, a plan as a society of rooms is an amazing idea. Yeah. And so, again, unfortunately, I, there's so many parts of this book that we're just kind of scratching the surface on. I can't cover it all. As we kind of wrap this up, one final thing I think is worth mentioning is, you know, uh, Scarp was actually one of my favorites. So you, you picked out one of my favorite projects in here, the, the stairs at the Olivetti showroom. The idea, and I think anyone who studies architecture is familiar with you know, his attention to detail, his detailing of joints that most architects kind of don't care about. But you kind of bring up the point that I think is valuable for him or any of the, we'll say the masters we study, and that is sometimes they aren't the greatest example. And you make the point here that, you know, he spent years on a building, he worked for years with builders, and he had a, a, a teaching salary, whereas the kind of the sad, I'll say sad reality is, as a practicing architect, you know, you kind of can't spend years on a project, no matter how beautiful it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yep. Yep. Yep. yep. And again, I, 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 some of the other art, architects you've you've named, kind of the same thing. They've had some projects and beautiful examples that are tough to follow, especially in today's, I guess we'll say, architectural reality. <laughs> It's very, it's very, very true, and um, I would, I would accept that as a, um, as a critique, I suppose, of my book, is in that to, to follow in its thoughts, and to take seriously the precedents be, being offered by the architects at sites, is not easy. If you are a hardworking corporate architect trying to trying to put uh, reasonable buildings out as fast as possible in, on time and on budget. Um, it's a harsh world um, in which to do really excellent architecture. Uh, but I feel like my role in life, I suppose, is to um, keep the message alive of what the art of architecture is capable of. Absolutely. And I guess I, I wasn't and, uh, exactly offering yeah. a critique. I would make more yeah. of the point that it's just something you have to jump into. Like you can't; it has to be something you're thinking of all the time, not something you try to incorporate at the very right. end. For example, I guess. Right. And I have to say, as a as a teacher of design, design studio, as you know, if you've done it, uh, Brian, it's it's um, it's more like being a coach. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's more like coaching than actual like teaching, but. I teach these things in studio, um, and my kids do very fine buildings, I have to say, and I think my peers will agree. And part of it's because I inject these thoughts into the conversation. Uh, I don't make them jump hoops. We don't do you know, incredible scientific experiments. I just It's just, hey, think about this, think about this. And if you do, it changes things. And my, my fervent dream is as these students go on and become part of uh, you know, super efficient uh, firms, um, where there's not really time to ponder these things, but that it maybe it doesn't take much to just add them to the flow of what makes a building a little better than it needed to be. Um, yeah, and then maybe among the, my book's readers, there will be a, you know, a future Scarpa or someone who's lucky enough to, to, to practice architecture at its most extended uh, level. You know? I agree. Well, like I said, I, I personally, I think that this can be brought in on any project, whether you're doing a, a house addition or a small coffee shop or a $60 million museum and you know, all that, you know, cause the case is made that there are some really big firms that are kind of using parametric software and again, I won't name any names that kind of don't have as much soul or experience. No, no, not at all. So even they have yeah. the freedom and the money, and it's still not kind of being used properly in my mind. Yeah. So listen, we all try to make a difference, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as I said, you know, there's so much more, unfortunately. Mm. We, but uh, you know, one thing is, I know you have plenty of other books as well. But you know, since the book's been published, what what projects have you been working on? What's been keeping you busy? Uh Oh, you really want to know? A pool house for my brother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> a house for uh, some neighbors uh, around the corner, uh, which, I'm, yeah, which I think is going to come out great. Um, yeah, addition for another relative. I'm not going to claim to be a practitioner. But I have, uh, over the years, I have about 12 projects 
around town that are residential, and my own house, which is pretty nice. Uh, but I, you know, I wouldn't, I would not, I would stake my reputation, such as it is, as a, a writer and a teacher, um, and maybe a theorist. So. Well, great. I'm not, I'm not expecting a Pritzker anytime no. soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough to get one of those. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Perhaps in the future we could talk about any of these other books I, I, I see here. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Hopefully. I wanted to thank you very much for being on the show with me today. All right, Brian. I, uh, I hope people enjoy it. For everyone listening, listening, the book is Architecture Beyond Experience. Thank you and have a great day. All right. Thank you.